When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Trying to do anything together is hard. It's not hard to comment online about stuff or to violate somebody's space. What's hard is to do something together, collaborating with a group of people to make a piece of work of art. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Awardist. I am Entertainment Weekly Executive Editor Jared Hall. So excited to have all of you here. Thanks for tuning in. This week, we are taking a small break from our regular Emmys race coverage to focus on the upcoming Tony Awards with a special roundtable of some of this year's nominees. And joining me for that is EW senior writer Maureen Lee Linker. Hey, Maureen, how are you? I am great, Jared. Uh, ready to get my jazz hands and some (laughs) tap routines going here. (laughs) You know what? The, the, the nice thing is since this is audio in tap, plays very well into audio. So <laughs> it's, it's all about the sound and the noise. So you, you chose exactly the right uh, the right genre there of dance. But here's the thing, uh, for anyone tuning in, you might know Maureen from her extensive reporting on uh, the romance genre, including Bridgerton, certainly her coverage of classic Hollywood. And she is also one of our theater-loving staffers. And uh, I also want to mention she is the host of our upcoming book adaptations podcast called Screen After Reading. That one debuts June 8th, wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Maureen, tell me a bit about that and uh, who some of your guests are going to be. Yeah, it's very exciting. I mean, for those of you who love adaptation and the art of adaptation, this is going to be a must listen. We really get into the nitty gritty of process and how you take a book from page to screen. And we talk to everybody involved in every stage of that, from the authors of the novels to the screenwriters, the producers, the actors who are bringing the words to life, any and all of that is on the table. And we're talking to the teams behind some of this year's buzziest adaptations, including Conversations with Friends, Anatomy of a Scandal, so many great shows. We've got six episodes. Each one is dedicated to a different TV or film adaptation. So definitely come and check that out. Love that. Uh, Definitely encourage people to give that one a listen. I will certainly be right there along for that one. Okay, so Maureen, let's take the stage, pun fully intended, for our main event here, the Tony Awards. Those are June 12th on CBS, and you can also stream them on Paramount+. Plus, and they are hosted by recent Oscar winner <laughs> Ariana DeBose, uh, who's just uh, such a, an incredible talent, and I cannot wait to see what she is going to do. I hope we get like a big, you know, Hugh Jackman-esque, oh. uh, Neil Patrick Harris-esque opening number for her, don't you? Yes, that is exactly what I'm hoping for. I mean, uh, we got to see it in West Side Story, but not as yeah. much in some of her other work, but Ariana is just an incredible dancer. And so I hope yeah. she gets to flaunt that skill in her hosting duties. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I don't think we're going to see much of that in her upcoming role in Westwood. So uh, <laughs> take advantage of it here on the Tonys. Yeah. Um, you 
you were in New York recently to check out some of this year's uh, really incredible shows. Give me uh, and the listeners a little list of what you got to check out. Well, I saw seven shows in five days, which was uh, quite the whirlwind. Um, I got to see (laughs) the new revival of Funny Girl, which was virtually snubbed uh, from from the Tonys. And then Mm -hmm. I also saw the Music Man revival, the revival of Macbeth with Daniel Craig and Ruth Nega. I saw Cyrano, which is an off-Broadway production, but with James McAvoy as Cyrano de Bergerac. And then I saw the off-Broadway production of Little Shop of Horrors, a new Mm. play called POTUS, and Six the Musical. So a a good mix of musicals and plays. Yeah, it sure was. Any standouts from the group there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, probably my favorite of the whole trip was Cyrano, which sadly is not eligible for Tony because it was off-Broadway. I just thought James McAvoy's performance was incredible. And if it were eligible, I, I feel like he would win. It did win a ton of Olivier Awards, which is the British equivalent of the Tony Award. Mm-hmm. The Music Man is just like such a love letter to the golden age of Broadway and that era of mm-hmm. musical theater. And Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster is absolutely wonderful, as you would expect them to be. And then I loved yeah. POTUS. Like, I have not laughed that hard in a theater in a really long time. Like, hours later, my face still hurt from laughing. <laughs> Oh, wow. Okay. So now that is one that I feel like is just really kind of starting to uh, pick up steam in terms of people hearing more about it. What is that one about exactly? Yeah, it's a really interesting conceit. So it was written by a young playwright, Selena Fillinger. This is her Broadway debut. She's 27 or 28. Um, Wow. Yeah, crazy. And it is about all of the women behind the scenes in the White House. So this is a fictional president. Um, He's never really given a name. They don't want you to interpret it as any like real name. Um, Okay. And it's a wide litany of women in his life, including his wife, the first lady, the chief of staff, the press secretary, a reporter who's in the White House press pool, and his mistress and a White House receptionist. And it's basically about like all the stuff that goes down behind the scenes and how these women are trying to hold it together and things go wildly off the rails. And it's an ensemble cast with some of the brightest lights. I mean, Vanessa Williams, Rachel Dratch, Julianne Huff, uh, Susie Nakamura, Julie White. Like it is an incredible cast. Yeah, and a couple of them got, uh, they did get nominations. Rachel Dratch, a Tony nominee, which I love so much, and Julie White, who's just such a delight. Love her pretty much in everything she does. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's that's a show I, I feel like I'm starting to see a lot more people talk about. So good for them. And and like you said, it's such an interesting conceit, and and I love what they're doing there. Yeah, it's, it's a real shame. It opened basically the last weekend of eligibility for Tony voting. So I think mm-hmm. that a lot of people just didn't get a chance to see it before they had to cast their votes Mm. for nominees because it didn't get nominated for best play and I'm really quite perplexed like it would have been nice to have Selena Fellinger in that mix because Mm. I think it's a really smart sharp comedy and I think if it had opened in March and not the end of April it probably would have been on that list Um, and I'm glad that Julie White and Rachel Dratch snuck in there into the Tony race Mm -hmm. I would have also nominated Julianne Huff I think she's an absolute revelation in this, but Mm. I'm glad it at least got a couple nods because it's a really special show. Yeah. So let's consider the one there that you mentioned. Uh, We'll consider that a snub. Are there any others from this year that you just, you can't get over? They're still kind of are hurting you to your core. (laughs) 
I am a little bummed that Funny Girl didn't get more love. You know, it didn't get great reviews. And I thought the reviews were unnecessarily harsh. I mean, I didn't think it was a spectacular revival or production, but I didn't think Beanie Feldstein was as grossly miscast as a lot of the reviews seem mm. to indicate. So I wish it would have gotten- Are you saying you would have cast Leah Michelle? <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely not. Um, just because I do think it's really important that a Jewish woman play Fanny Bryce. So that, that's why I wouldn't cast Leah, as marvelous as her voice is. Um, yeah. I just think ultimately, like my takeaway from that show is that that book is not great. And the sheer force of Barbara Streisand's personality outweighs that. But if you mm. don't have that, yeah. then it kind of just all falls apart a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's so uh, like she she's so synonymous with that material, too. It's a, Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I just had one more uh, snub. I really loved the women of six. I think that they're a fantastic mm. ensemble. And it weirdly didn't get a nomination for best book, even though it got nominated for best musical and best score. And then none of the women in the cast got recognized, which I, on the one hand, understand because it really is an ensemble piece and they all share equal weight in the storytelling. So it'd be very difficult to pick one person out. But if I had to, I would have picked out Brittany Mack who plays Anna of Cleves because she is just a force of nature and so fierce and so funny. And I would have loved to see her get the nomination for that. And you bring up something that people uh, ask me this question. So I'm going to pose it to you to uh, give a, a very like in a nutshell explainer. What is the difference between best book of a musical and best score for, uh, you know, music and lyrics written for a theater? Yeah. So it's basically the difference between best screenplay and best score. So the book is is the screenplay. It's the script. It is the words that people speak aloud. And the score specifically is the music and lyrics, the songs that people sing within the course of the show. Now, of course, that gets dicey when you have something like Hamilton, where there is virtually no difference between those things. <laughs> right. um, but in a very traditional sense, like a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, you have your script and you have your songs. And <laughs> um, and they get honored in different ways because often it is different people writing those things. Yep, indeed. Okay, those were the folks who did not get nominated, but let's talk about some of the ones who did quickly. I would love to get your predictions in a few categories here. Let's start with Best Musical. The nominees are Girl from the North Country, MJ, Mr. Saturday Night, Six, A Strange Loop, and Paradise Square. Lay it on me, who you think it is? I think uh, there's no question this is going to a strange loop. Uh, it, they got 11 nominations. They're the most celebrated show on Broadway this season. And, you know, rightfully so. It is, of mm -hmm. these shows, it is the most different and interesting. I mean, MJ and Girl from the North Country are jukebox musicals in essence. Um, Mr. Saturday Night mm -hmm. is a... Yet another film that has been turned into a musical. Um, Paradise Square um, is a period piece that a lot of people say feels dated. Six is fantastic mm. and very new, but I think to a lot of people feels more like a concert than a show. Sure. So I think Strange Loop has this tied up pretty easily because it's just a groundbreaking 
really exciting piece of work and the type of thing that should be honored at an awards ceremony. But also, can we just talk about the producers for A Strange Loop? I mean, like people like Jennifer Hudson and Minnie and Kaling are going oh, to have right? Tonys now if if it wins. <laughs> I mean, that puts uh, Jennifer Hudson one step closer to be to having an EGOT. So there you go. Love that for her. Uh, best play, the nominees, Clyde's, Hangman, Skeleton Crew, The Layman Trilogy, The Minutes. Yeah, this is a tighter race, I think. Um, but if I had to pick one, my guess would be The Layman Trilogy, purely because it's the play with the most nominations. Mm. It's just got mm-hmm. eight. Um, it is also a very different approach to theatrical storytelling. Like it's only three actors and it's got like a very narrative third person style. It's a a bit of an oddity, but was really celebrated for its performances and its different take on things. So yeah, that would, that would be my guess because I think some of these shows were, have the effect of uh, the the anti-effect of recency bias and that they already closed in the fall. And then the Mm. minutes and hangman got really mixed receptions. Got it. Okay. Let's stick with uh, the play categories here for a second because we have uh, three actors from the Layman trilogy nominated for lead actor in a play Simon Russell Beale, Adam Godley, Adrian Lester. And then also in there, we have uh, David Thrillfall from Hangman, uh, David Morse from How I Learned to Drive, Sam Rockwell for American Buffalo, and Ruben Santiago Hudson for Lackawanna Blues. Yeah, this is a tough one. I mean, I could see it going to any of the guys from the Lehman trilogy, but I could also see that thing that we often see happen uh, at award shows happening where they split the vote. And so mm-hmm. neither of them ends up with a majority because um, I wouldn't say any one of the three of them is better than the other or or easily mm. stands out above the other. Um, I saw the production here in Los Angeles. So I saw both Simon Russell Beale and Adam Godley, Adrian Lester uh, had been replaced by someone else. Um, I would go with Ruben Santiago Hudson because I did not see Lackawanna Blues, but I only heard wonderful things about that performance. He is a Broadway August Wilson stalwart. And I think Mm. uh, it would be great to see him get that win. Got it. Okay, let's move on then to uh, actress, lead actress in a play, LaShawns for Trouble in Mind, Deirdre O'Connell for Dana H., Mary Louise Parker, How I Learned to Drive, Gabby Beans, The Skin of Our Teeth, Ruth Nega, Macbeth. This is another one where I could really see it going to any of these ladies. Um, LaShawns is a longtime Broadway fave. She originated the role of Celie in The Color Purple Musical and won Mm -hmm. a Tony for that. Um, I only hear heard rapturous things about Deirdre O'Connell and Dana H. Mary Lou's Parker is a Broadway and television vet and how I learned to drive mm-hmm. was sort of her breakout. Um, and this is her returning to the work alongside David Morse. They did it off Broadway uh, about, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and now finally it came to Broadway, but the Tonys love that star power and Ruth Naga is far and away the best part of this production of Macbeth. She gives a mesmerizing performance as Lady M. Mm. uh, And it is also her Broadway debut. So I don't know if it's a prediction so much as I would love to see her be the one. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah, dream pick. But gosh, she is so good in just 
everything she does. Um, so uh, I, I could see it be very uh, I could see it being very deserving here as well. OK, let's stick with uh, the actresses for lead in a musical. Sharon D. Clark for Carolina Change, Carmen Cusack flying over Sunset, Sutton Foster, of course, the music man. Uh, oh, gosh. Joaquina Kalukongo. Joaquina Kalukongo for Paradise Square and Mayor Winningham for Girl from North Country. So uh, I could see Sharon D. Clark or Joaquina Kalukongo uh, getting it um, just because both of their performances have received a lot of love and a lot of attention. But to be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if Sutton Foster wins another Tony for The Music Man. This is her seventh nomination. And sometimes you start to wonder, oh, is she just nominated because she's Sutton Foster, because she's a legend? But I can say, <laughs> I can say from seeing this performance, the answer is no. Like she it really is doing something special and different here with this character. And I can see people mm -hmm. wanting to honor her for that. Yeah, which is what you want. If if you're going to put on a new production, have a reason, something new to to tell and do there. So I could totally see that. All right, this category. The names here, the talent here, wow, I don't know. Lead actor in a musical, Billy Crystal, Mr. Saturday Night, Miles Frost for MJ, where he's playing Michael Jackson, Hugh Jackman in The Music Man, Rob McClure for Mrs. Doubtfire, and Jaquel Spivey for A Strange Loop. Well, a lot of star power in this category, yeah. as you said, uh, but I think it's going to be Jaquel Spivey. Uh, he, this is his Broadway debut in A Strange Loop. Uh, he is the heart and soul. In essence, as you said, this this was a one-man show, and now it is no longer. There is an ensemble, but all of the characters are creations of uh, Usher, the main character who he plays, of his mind. Um, so in essence, it kind of is all him, and so much of the show rests on his shoulders. So I, I definitely think it's probably going to go to him. A, a chance that uh, Jackman or McClure make uh, a surprise go at it, but I really think my, my money would be on Strange Loop. Well, we will find out in uh, just a couple weeks. All right, so let's move on uh, to the to the heart of today's episode and this roundtable of nominees, a uh, really incredible group that you assembled. Please tell everyone all about that. Well, it was a really special conversation. It was great having people from so many different walks of theater. I mean, Tracy Lutz wrote the minutes, but he's also acting in it. And it's the first time he's acting in something he's written himself, which mm. was really interesting hearing about that experience. Um, Sutton Foster, if you've never watched an interview with Sutton, like she, she's just a delight. <laughs> she is such a lovely mm -hmm. human being. And it was really interesting because I think her portrayal of Marion is one of the standout performances this season. I think she is very – she's done something really interesting with a character who could just be an incredibly boring ingenue. And she's infused so much of her own quirky personality into that role mm. and made mm -hmm. her a character who you really connect with and want to know more about. And I loved hearing about mm. how Marion was never on her radar as like a dream role or something she wanted to do. And oh. she never would have considered herself for it. And I, I just think like the marriage of those two things ended up being so genius and it was really unlikely casting. And so it was great hearing about her journey with that. Um, we had some great conversations with Michael R. Jackson, who this is his Broadway 
debut with A Strange Loop, and it is the record holder. It's got 11 nominations, the most this year. And Jesse Williams making his stage debut, not just as Broadway, his first time ever doing theater in Take Me Out. And then Camille A. Brown also making her Broadway debut as a director. She's choreographed before. She's nominated for both director and choreographer, and she's the first black woman to do both on Broadway in 67 years which is wow crazy. Um, wow. Yeah. And so I loved hearing from each of them about their processes and ha- all the work it took them to to get here, especially Michael R. Jackson. 16 years he's been working oh on a gosh. strange loop. Right, because that started as a one-man yeah, uh, off-Broadway a one-man production, show. right? That's, oh, uh, wow. Yeah. He, he said basically he wrote it because he had nothing else to do, and he wasn't getting work, and he was Ugh. really depressed. So he just wrote this show, and then 16 years later, it's it's a huge Broadway hit, and he won a Pulitzer Prize for it. And you you got to love a story like that. Oh, for sure, because especially, I mean, you know, you look at theater, and uh, I mean, for folks who maybe don't know, uh, theater actors and creators and such, they are paid way less than anyone, uh, you know, what people are making in TV and movies. And so to maintain that, um, that dedication, that tenacity, that drive to get something on a Broadway stage is so admirable. And, uh, you know, you, you can understand why somewhere along the way people may want to give up, but they keep going and, and it pays off in such amazing ways, uh, sometimes as we're, you know, seeing with these nominations and stories like his. Yeah. And then the three of them, I mean, all five of them, but especially Michael, Jesse, and Camille, this is a really great year for Black artists on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And that has been reflected in the Tony nominations, just a lot of Black nominees, which is fantastic. The theater industry is like sort of a few steps behind uh, the rest of us in terms of grappling with racism and, and changes in culture that was spurred on by the events of summer 2020. By virtue of the fact that they did not reopen until last fall and stages have been closed. So there's just like a couple of steps behind things like film and television in terms of where they are in these conversations. And it, it was really introspective and, and fascinating to hear from Michael, Jesse, and Camille about their experiences on Broadway this season and what they think has been successful, but also the change they hope to continue to see. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, they're doing some great work. It, it shouldn't just be a moment. This should be, uh, you, you know, the norm. So hopefully we will we'll see that continue to play out. And before we get to that interview, I know I said we're dedicating this entire episode to Tony's, but I do want to touch really quickly on the Emmys because I'm asking uh, all of my guest co-hosts coming through here, um, what performer or show you would just love to see get a nomination this year? Something that you think is perhaps not getting as much attention as it should? So I have two major ones. Okay. Performance-wise, I would just really love to see Tom Hiddleston get nominated for Loki. I think that Ah. he has consistently over the course of the last decade playing that role, turned in such like grade A Shakespearean level work, but because it's a Marvel movie mm-hmm. and often he, he only has like a few scenes in these later films, yeah. uh, he hasn't really been recognized for it. And I thought with the different timelines and all the different Lokis that that yeah. he just gave a masterclass on that show. And I would love to see 
him get some uh, appreciation for that. And then the other one is you, you probably saw this coming. I am a huge fan of Minx on HBO Max. Mm. And yeah. I would love to see any and everyone from that show get honored, especially the writers, though, because I think it's so feminist and smart and like constantly pulling the rug out from under you. Uh, and then mm-hmm. performance wise, my two faves on the show are Jessica Lowe, who plays Bambi, um, who is like, <laughs> she is the coordinator of the centerfold <laughs> shoots, but she, it's just a genius performance of everyone underestimates her and thinks she's dumb because she's a blonde pornography model. And mm-hmm. she's like, actually really smart and knows her shit and i just love her and then lennon parham who plays shelly who is the main character yeah. sister who is going through this journey of sexual awakening um and becomes good friends with bambi the, the whole ensemble is amazing but those two women are real standouts on the show love that all right well thank you for giving me those picks i i had to get in some Emmy's talk, uh, of course, in the middle of all of this. All right, folks, don't go anywhere because Maureen's conversation with Sutton Foster, Jesse Williams, Michael R. Jackson, Camille Brown, and Tracy Letts is coming up right after this quick break. The awardist will be right back. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to The Awardist. As promised, today's main attraction is our roundtable with some of this year's Tony nominees, Sutton Foster, Jesse Williams, Michael R. Jackson, Camille A. Brown, and Tracy Letts, led by EW senior writer Maureen Lee Linker. Please enjoy. Hi, everyone. This is a special Tony Awards edition of The Awardist, and I am joined by five incredible Tony nominees, Sutton Foster, Jesse Williams, Tracy Letts, Michael R. Jackson, and Camille A. Brown. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'll start with an easy question, which is, what does this nomination, whether it is your seventh or your first, mean to you? Sutton, you you are the record holder here, so why don't you start? (laughs) I mean, it it means a lot, especially now coming back after two years where theater wasn't existing and now it's it's thriving and, and people are back. But honestly, just being able to be in a show on Broadway right now is an award in itself. So I feel an enormous sense of gratitude and um I'm just not taking one day for granted that I get to walk into a stage door and do the thing that I love to do. And so being nominated and recognized for it is awesome. It's great. It's like, it's like the cherry and the whipped cream on top, you know, and I'm so excited about the Tony awards and being able to celebrate theater and Broadway being back. And it feels, it feels, you you have to sort of hold on to it. It's a, it's a special thing. Yeah. This is my, my first everything. So um, it for me, it, it's tremendously surreal, and it really represents, I think, a continuation of what I've been experiencing as a really wonderful, warm welcome from the theater community, from the Broadway community. This is my first play. This is my first time on Broadway, and I've you know come in 
taking it very, very seriously and trying to do my work and be, you know, ask a lot of questions. And I'm a student out here and I so appreciate uh, the tutelage and welcome that I've been getting from folks and then being able to share and, and the love that this community has. It's such a strong, well-fortified group of people who are so incredibly talented. So um, it's, it's just, it's pretty wonderful. It's pretty wonderful just to be rubbing shoulders with you all. Camille, this is you've been nominated before for choreography, but this is your directorial debut and therefore your first nomination in that category. Is that an you know, extra gratification? I mean, no pressure, Broadway debut, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I feel extremely honored. When I was first asked to direct and choreograph, I was so scared. I mean, the stakes were high. It's my Broadway debut. And so to feel one extreme of this terror about doing it on this kind of platform and then uh, being acknowledged uh, with a nomination for both my direction and my choreography is just amazing. And I'm so honored and really, really grateful. And it's been 67 years since a Black woman has directed and choreographed on Broadway. So um, it's expansive in terms of what this moment means for me. The first one uh, was Catherine Dunham. Wow. Tracy and Michael, you have both won Pulitzers for your work, Michael, for your nominated work, Tracy, in the past. Does having that on your shelf add or take away pressure from your new work or or moving forward in this moment? No, I don't think it takes away from it. You know, the, the Tony Award is a theater award specifically. It's one that's like that comes from the theater community. And so that means a lot to me particularly for my show, which is such a an unlikely, I guess, entry into being celebrated by that community, some might say. And so I feel really honored that, you know, all the, the hours and the blood, sweat and tears and the time that I spent, you know, with my team and also alone, just working on this particular piece is being received in this way by the theater community. So I feel quite honored by that. Yeah, there's no, uh, I feel no pressure, uh, no extra pressure. The fact that we're even here, I mean, this is the culmination for all of us, I'm sure, of years, years of work to get a show to Broadway. And then, of course, the delay we've had because of the pandemic, just, just to be up on Broadway feels uh, like we're winning. And then to be nominated and invited to the party is just great. So no, there's no feeling, no pressure at all. It's all fun. Some of you are nominated for new work and others for revivals. Would you say there are unique challenges to each? And if so, what are they? Michael, why don't, why don't you start? Yeah, I definitely think being um, nominated for a new piece can be challenging in some ways because people don't know what they're getting, especially with a musical, like they're used to hearing a song that they know. And so a lot of people have to really get to know a strange loop in my work and decide for themselves how they feel about it. But on the other hand, people get to know a new piece and get to fall in love with it or be critical of it or however they feel about it. And there's something exciting to me about that that I'm really into as well. Sutton, you've done plenty of both. So how would you compare uh, revival versus new work? Revivals can be intimidating because of the uh, unbelievable people and the that have played the role before or the history of a piece. Um, but I think what I try to do is approach everything as if it's never been done before. So to kind of dive in as green and ignorant as possible so I can like 
make it my own or discover it as much as I can, especially with a show like The Music Man, which I feel like everyone knows The Music Man <laughs> or has done it in their high school or, and, or has, has lots of thoughts about it or how it should be done. And so I was very intimidated and all of that noise was just not helpful. And so I had to sort of put blinders on and kind of just go back to the text and like interpret it the way I saw it. And luckily I was working with incredible creatives who were willing to sort of break it open and didn't have a, a lane they were trying to, to go down. As long as I feel like I'm with a, a team, a collaborative team that allows the, the opportunity for exploration, I feel like you can really dive into these, these works and honor obviously what is written on the page and what the Meredith Wilson wrote, but but sort of find your own way with it. Yeah. Camille, what was it like for you jumping into a revival versus choreographing and directing a new work? Yeah, I mean, the challenge with uh, the work of having a revival is that Ndjake Shange's For Color Girls is beloved by Black women, by women, by Black people. Um, and even though it's been 40 years since it's been on Broadway, it's been a movie, it's been countless iterations of it. So I first had to get out of my own way because there was a fear of, well, what am I gonna contribute to it? There've been so many people that have done this before me, what am I gonna say? And I just had to remove that and go, Camille, just enter it the way that you see the poems and just dive into it and speak your truth in it. So that was the, the challenge was getting out of my own way and the, and the pressure of trying to do something that is as pivotal as for Color Girls. But like my friend tells me, it's an offering. What I have to contribute is an offering to the legacy piece. Tracy, you've also, you write most of the new work you do, but, <laughs> but you've also appeared in revivals. And how would you compare those processes? Again, uh, I I mean, to work on a new work as a playwright is, I mean, you're making something where something wasn't there before. So it, it, there's a there's a real process of uh, invention that happens before we get in the rehearsal room. But once once we're in the rehearsal room, I think you approach, as Sutton was saying, you, you kind of approach them the same way. You start on page one and say, what's the play about? What are we trying to do? Who's this person? What do they want? It doesn't matter if it's a revival or if it's a new play. You have to you have to start from scratch. You just can't uh, battle the ghosts of the people who have uh, done it before and brought it to life in the past. It's not it's not a way to bring the work to life. Jesse, did you find it comforting or intimidating that you were making your stage debut in a revival? I think I initially did find it a touch, and I anticipated feeling intimidated. Like, oh well, this is already one best play. This is already all these nominations, is there going to be an expectation? That's not really a, really a useful line of thinking. So let me shift gears into how I can crack this thing open and what does it mean? Exactly what Tracy said. What, is it, what does the character want? What tools does he have at his disposal? Where are we? When are we? You know, and, and just listening. Um, so yes, I had that reflex, but I quickly found it to be uh, not in service to myself or, or the fellow actors or, or the process. So I kind of shifted into a much more comfortable place of starting it, you know, in the basement and building up. Yeah. Jesse and Michael, these are your Broadway debuts. And as I said, Camille, it's your directorial debut on Broadway. What has that newness and that being sort of the ingenue, as it were here, <laughs> um, been like? I mean, were there mentors or people you found really essential in this process along the way? 
yes, countless mentors and my friends and my family had to remind me over and over again that Camille, this is you've done you've you've been directing and choreographing for over 15 years with your own company. Yes, this is a different arena and you're going to experience new challenges and learn a lot, but just in terms of directing and choreographing isn't new. So I really had to lean into that and really listen to them. Um, and they really provided guidance uh, throughout the process. So I was able to see and trust my instincts and trust the things that I did know and be open to the things that I didn't know and learn and learn very fast. Yeah, Michael. For me, it was mostly just having my company and my producers who, my producer was like a very experienced Broadway producer and like my director had had been on Broadway before and we all were really working together toward the same goal. So I just sort of leaned toward them to help guide me through this process and they, you know, definitely helped me up during it. So I, I feel, again, grateful to just have a company of people around me who lift me up. Yeah, similarly, you know, I had certainly some um, folks in mentorship roles in my life. We also had this start stop because we started this process right before COVID. We were in week two of rehearsals. I'd already moved out back out to New York when, when everything got shut down. So had this kind of false start, and but it did allow us to begin relationships and in-person dynamics. And I really leaned on our director, Scott Ellis, a lot for just kind of the rules of the road and permission and and, and, and kind of trusting myself and process. and. Uh, though the stage was new to me, storytelling wasn't, and that's okay. And it does, I don't have to reinvent the wheel here. It's still about the honesty and the truth of the experience and the moment. And just run it and find the truth through repetition and learn that repetition isn't uh, a prison. It actually is a channel for liberation. It is the freedom of being able to really shine a light into every little crack and crevice of the material as opposed to TV and film, right? Where you're going to say it one day and you'll never say those lines ever again in your life. I just started to view it as a real opportunity to dig and build and play. And it was also just a real, it has been, it continues to be every night, frankly, a, a life lesson on uh, letting go. Uh, maybe it, maybe that scene felt funky. Maybe I felt like I, you know, dropped out there for a moment. I don't beat myself up and let it domino into the next five scenes. You know, this is I'm the rookie here. So this is those rookie mistakes, I would imagine. But I love being a student and I love learning actively. I love feeling alive and processing new information and asking questions. So this is a dream. Yeah. Sutton, I was going to ask you and Tracy, you know, obviously, the two of you have been around the Broadway block a few times. Um, but what's what's something new you learned this go around, whether it was something like super active or something more internal? Oh, gosh. The first thing I thought of is I'm a mom now. And so, um, and I think too, there's something, I don't know, it's a combination of a lot of things. I think it's coming back after two years. I think it's being 47. I think it's having a five-year-old child who lives in my house, who I'm a mom too. <laughs> but it's like, I just have a different, maybe a different appreciation or a, 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 everything just feels more joyful. I have more balance, you know? I love what I do. I love my job. But um, I, I don't know. I think I just, I've, I've I think that's the thing I've maybe I've learned is that I, I don't take any of it for granted, and and that it's yeah. And I'm con I mean I'm constant. I was Jesse. It's like I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly like oh yeah. All right, I'm thinking about my dinner. Like what I want for dinner, you know, or whatever. Like you're constantly you're constantly trying to like find new things, explore, focus, play, like all of those things, and all of it like exists 
maybe that's the thing I'm learning. It's like, it's like learning how to sort of like let all of life kind of exist. It all exists at the same time. And like, that's okay. It's all, it all makes it richer. I don't know anything. I don't know anything. <laughs> and every time I'm out there, I feel like, how the hell have I ever done this before? I'm trying to figure it out from scratch. I mean, obviously you bring a lot of experience uh, experience on stage, life experience to bear, but I always feel like I have to sort of learn it from scratch. And this is a, an odd example of this because I'm, I've never acted in a play that I wrote before this, uh, before mm -hmm. the minutes. And so uh, there's a kind of, I don't know, there's a, a weird bifurcated brain uh, thing that's taking place where I'm uh, in the show, I'm playing the show, uh, but I'm also very aware of the show as the writer of the show, kind of a, a, a player manager or something. It's a very odd position to be in. I've never been in it before. So it's it feels very new to me. Hmm. Um, a Strange Loop for Colored Girls and Take Me Out are all plays uh, that interrogate race, sexuality, identity. So for Michael, Camille, and Jesse, do you feel like Broadway is a friendly place to be having those conversations? I mean, we throw around words like diversity and inclusion, but is that something the theatrical community is getting better at? Camille, you go first. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, mean, uh, <laughs> I, think, I think we'll see. I think we have to continue to challenge the system. I think uh, Broadway has seen uh, seven uh, playwrights uh, on Broadway represented, and that's absolutely amazing. And my question is, and now what? And now what? And now what? How do we continue that conversation? How do we get more people that have diverse and um, dimensional stories um, to to speak and to be alive? And how do we bring in more audiences? How do we bring in more black audiences? We have the we have black theater nights. How do how do we turn that into black theater weeks, black theater month, the whole season? You know, how do we continue to keep challenging the system to challenge the system? So that's that's how I feel about it. Um, my perspective on this is, you know, sometimes a little cranky, sometimes a little nuanced, sometimes just, I don't know, sometimes I'm like, why are you asking me this question? I like have like lots of thoughts about it. And I guess where I'd land on it is, I think it's all completely subjective. It depends on the eye of the beholder, you know, because like, you know, there could be 41 plays, uh, there could be 41 Black plays in all the theaters and that wouldn't be enough. Or there could be three amazing plays and three Broadway theaters, and that would be incredible. I feel like trying to, if you don't talk about the sort of what's on Broadway and not just who's on Broadway, that like thinking about, about this along racial terms for me is, is very difficult. I can't, I, and so that, but that's just my perspective on it. Um, and so certainly, Having seven black plays on Broadway, certainly having my musical on Broadway, certainly having for color girls on Broadway, like these are all great things. But I think at the end of the day, it's still going to be about it has to be about what what we're doing and like what and and how do audiences receive that and and what are the conversations that come from that that sort of relationship from you know artistic. Uh, output and like audience reception and all the things that sort of drive that. 
Um, and I and I sort of definitely as a black writer, I I'm hungering for much more conversations about what I'm doing, what I'm writing, what I'm saying, what what my collaborators are doing, what is the quality of our artistic output. Um, it's not for me. It's not enough to just say he's here. Who cares? I don't care that I'm here. I care that like that I wrote a good musical and that people like it or they don't like it and they can tell you why. Um, and so I, for me, it will be enough when those conversations take precedence over the very fact of my existence on a commercial Broadway stage or, or in general, or in a, a high position or whatever, you know, things, all the things that people pat themselves on the back for just hiring somebody and paying them money. But like, what are you paying them money for and to do uh, and to say? And that's sort of how I see it. Yeah, that's um, very interesting uh, point. It really is all very subjective. And I certainly couldn't speak to timeline or the chronology of supposed progress. But I do think that one of the interesting things to behold is it's really not a question for uh, Black creatives as much as it is for audiences and particularly white audiences. You know, every other racial demographic has demonstrated throughout time a willingness and if a readiness to find themselves in other characters of other that look different from them. We grow up on it. We're reared by seeing ourselves in other bodies and only with the white world is the only only universe that not only like doesn't hide their refusal to do that often and 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 fighting back and resisting why I can't that's not for me that's somebody else's work that's a black thing that's a why is that character black you know freaking out on social media and all these things because they don't see themselves there's only that's that's so it's really about the it's, an, it's a challenge to the audiences to grow and blossom and accept and realize that the world's not going to explode if the lead uh, you know, is a black woman instead. She's still a person. She still has feelings. She still was a child. She still has a mother. It's it's nothing changed. Um, so, but but this is all a process, and I'm entirely optimistic about that. It's hard to unlearn um, uh, from these experiences. So exposure and representation means everything. It, it encourages uh, folks that are underrepresented to step forward. It gives them one more attainable goal on their dartboard of things they could possibly pursue. And it also can uh, change the, the perspective of hundreds of people in a theater uh, or thousands that had never thought about it that way. And, and most importantly, to get away from this kind of tokenism, we need, we need numbers. We need, there is no one way to be a black man or a woman, right? There is no, homo- we're not a homogenous group. We're not monolithic. There's more diversity within um, the black storytelling world and black experience than there is outside of it, uh, right? Obviously. Um, um, so, so all of this, we're, we're on the right track. We're just going to have to, um, have, um, the dominant culture pick up some of the slack in the process. And can I just piggyback on that? Just cause it's something I feel very passionately about, because I've also caught the sort of mirror opposite of that as well, wherein particularly in my show, where there are those who feel upset or feel some kind of way about the fact that there could be somebody who's not black or queer who sees himself in the show that I've written. And I Mm. feel that to me, that's important as well. Is that like that the humanity, the thing that theater is so good about is promoting a shared humanity. And as Jesse said, enabling you to see yourself in other characters who are not you. And what I've learned 
sort of working on my piece in particular is that for some people, my show is a, is a mirror and for other people, it's a window. And that hope people can sit together in the same space and see the same story, which is very specifically about a young Black gay man, but like they can find something in his experience of being a human being that speaks to them no matter where they come from. And that's been like very radicalizing to me because we live in such a divisive world or a world that seems so divisive. And theater is a a unique institution that is live and in person with people breathing the same air that you can come together in a shared space and you can watch a story and it can um, inspire um, a sense of empathy um, among you, with your neighbor, with people on stage, with characters, all of those things. And that's like the beauty of theater in my view. I remember going to see Death of a Salesman when I was 19 years old with Brian Dennehy. And I am not an old white man in the 1950s. And I can tell you that I cried my little eyes out at the end. Because whatever they were doing in that production, they like they touched into like into a sense of humanity that di- it didn't matter where I came from. I could see into the into the pathos and the sort of tragedy of his story, and that was something that inspired me to want to try to write stories that would do that for people from my community who maybe weren't from me, but also for people for my community. So. Again, this mirror window concept for me is very important, particularly in the in the arts world, because there's so few um, uh, things that promote that kind of shared experience. And I think it's very important. Yeah. Um, Tracy, I think the minutes is in conversation with these things we're talking about in a in a sort of strange p- parallel fashion. Um and I'm curious just like what first sent you off on that path of writing this play about sort of quiet complicity or, or the things we don't say out loud. You know, the original impulse to write the minutes, I think the first idea I had about writing the minutes was I was watching an old Frankenstein movie and I was struck by the character of the villagers. Uh, the villagers always presents as a single character, the, the unified mob with pitchforks and torches. And I got to thinking about, well, did they have a meeting, the villagers, before they decided to go out and kill the monster? Was there was there any dissent? Was there anybody in the among the villagers saying, I don't think we should go out and kill the monster? Uh, that's sort of the jumping off point for me, but uh, I saw, I see what is happening uh, in our culture in terms of a desire to uh, really entrench uh, a version of history which is legend and not, in fact, our actual history. And in the time since I've written the play, when I first wrote it in 2016, it's become much, much worse, much, uh, much more strident opposition to examining the actual history of this country. the genocide that took place in this country. And until we deal with the infection in this country, uh, we can't really clean the wound. And uh, the minutes provided an opportunity for me to look at the moment where we go, uh, uh, the tipping point where we move from our quaint small town democracy to something much scarier, uh, something uh, much more diabolical, which uh, I think we're 
unfortunately, the play has become just more true since I wrote it over the last six years. Great. All right. Well, I will briefly turn to Michael then. Could the journey of A Strange Loop from when you first started writing it to it now being on Broadway is really extraordinary and then getting these record 13 nominations. So can you just- 11. Give- 11. 11. Sorry. Um, I'm giving you more than you got. Um, <laughs> could you walk us through like the Cliff Notes version of that and like all of the hard work it took to get here and tell this story? Yeah, so I graduated from undergrad in 2003, 2002-2003. Um, I had a BFA degree, which I had no idea how to use to get a real job. Um, at that time, um, America was about to go to war with Iraq. I was living in an old lady's house in a bungalow-style house on the second floor, not knowing what I was going to do with my life. And so I started writing a monologue called Why I Can't Get Work. And that became the sort of basis for this musical that was just about a young black gay man wandering around New York, wondering why life was so terrible. And it was just for me an attempt at that time to sort of capture in real time a sense of young black gay alienation, sort of in a jar like a butterfly or something. And from there, I decided I needed to go spend money I didn't have on grad school. And I I went to musical theater writing school at NYU And I began writing songs, and those songs then started to speak to the monologue, more Black gay alienation. That was like my brand. And like um, that turned the piece into a one-man show that I performed at Ars Nova in 2006. And then like 20 people showed up. Two people walked out in the middle. I realized I wanted to create a musical. That's something that was not like a cabaret act. So I started working with a theater company that turned it into more of a conceptual musical theater piece. I did many readings after that. Jakina Nathak approached me in 2015 about, or no, Stephen Brackett approached me in 2012 about doing a a reading of the show with the musical, or I approached him about doing a musical, uh, a full reading of it, because I'd only had ever done either songs or the the show itself, or the book reading. Then we did a concert, um, or we did a, a a version of it with the whole cast being black and queer. That changed it sort of for, forever because it's not what it had been before. Then Shakina Nathak approached in 2015. We did a, a, a reading there. Then we did a concert version of 54 Below in 2016. Um, then Players Horizon said that they wanted to see it. So we did a reading for them um, in 2016, four days after Trump was elected. That then sort of blew everything mm-hmm. up as well. And then my producer... Uh, came on board when nobody would produce it. And she and Page 73 Productions decided to team up. We did an industry reading like nine months later. Then in 2018, Players Horizons put a bid on the show and said they would do it. Then a year later in 2019, we did the show. And so that was 16 years of my life just going wow. on and off, on and off, going back to this like musical that began with me literally just trying to sort of save my own life. Um, and also make art at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I tell this story to students just so that they understand that art takes the time that it takes. And I'm not saying that everything, every play or every, you know, whatever thing in your career that you're going to do is going to take that long, but it can, and it can be worth it. And in my case, it was worth it to take that time and to to keep going back to it and chisel away at, you know, the marble to get it to be exactly what it needed to be. And um, 
and so I, I just offer that to to people, particularly any artists, young artists who might be listening, that you should that you, there's no value in rushing it, or mm-hmm. the value that that you put into rushing it could be a value of diminishing returns. So um, take your time. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. I'm incredible. Camille, as you mentioned, you are the first Black woman to direct and choreograph on Broadway in 67 years. And you also uh, came into a text that has all this resonance and meaning in doing that. So um, I guess, what do you feel has changed in those 67 years and in the time since For Colored Girls premiered? And and what has it? You know, it's a a hard question to ask because... um, it's been 65, 60, excuse me, 67 years. So yes, there's, there is a sense of change because it, I, I am doing this now, but the, the argument can always, can also be, well, why did it take so long? So that question is kind of, um, I, I guess I'm not sure how to answer the question because it's, it's a hard space to be in and, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure how to. I'm not sure. What, I'm not sure what the question is. I'm sorry. No, no, that's okay. I think why did this take so long is the answer to oh, that, the question. Oh, the, 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 well, my, well, my, well, you know, that's not. That's not necessarily for me to 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 be able to to have the to bear the responsibility to, to ask to answer that question. Yeah. No. You absolutely know, um, not. And and uh, hopefully it does open up the conversation as to why it took so long, um, but to also lift up other Black women who are directors and choreographers who 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 can do this. Um, and and so so yeah, I, I guess I guess um, it's kind of not really for me to 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 answer. Yeah. Um, Sutton, you have originated some amazing roles and you've also brought to life like iconic parts like Reno Sweeney. Where was Marion in the the pantheon of great Broadway parts for you? <laughs> she wasn't even on the list <laughs> for me. <laughs> the parts that I would play, um, honestly, I didn't even think about it. I when they uh, I they first approached me about three years ago. Um, to play her and my first response was what why like I didn't understand it didn't make any sense to me I I could probably cast like 20 other people before I would get to me but I think that was also why she was intriguing was that she was sort of um not in my wheelhouse you know she was sort of a, a left turn um and uh and I and then I thought maybe she would maybe there was there was a new way to uh, discover her uh, that maybe there was there was more more to her than just a straightforward ingenue, so, you know. So uh, I, I I took it sort of as a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say like I uh, I saw the show a couple weeks ago, and I loved how you've made her into something more interesting than a standard mid century ingenue, and um and just wondered if that was something you were like really intent on from the word go. <laughs> I really I wasn't necessarily intent on anything. Like I, I go back to like tr- what Tracy was saying. I was kind of like, I know I knew nothing. I went in very, I was like, I had no preconceived notions of how she was going to unfold. In fact, I was pretty confident I would be fired. <laughs> I just really didn't know how it was going to turn out. So um, I, uh, I just sort of took it day to day and kind of discovered it along the way. I wasn't really aiming to, uh, 
uh, for anything. I had no, I had no idea, but I think that blank canvas was, uh, and and the sort of openness to discovery was um, was very helpful, useful for me. Um, mm-hmm. and being able to be in such a collaborative room. Um, for everyone, what is the thing in your show that the audience response to has surprised you the most? Camille, why don't you start while we oh, we while no, we have no, a no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so sorry, I think I cut you off. What what is um has surprised you the most? Yeah, what 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 um what audience response has surprised you the most? I I don't think I I don't I didn't know what to expect. Um I mean the show has been done uh, a lot of times, so you know that there's certain uh, things that people respond to and and love. Um, the thing that I can say is that I so look forward to people's responses to somebody almost walked off with all of my stuff. Um, it's just it's performed by by uh, Oakley, and it's I just I just can't wait for that moment every time. And all of the women throughout the whole show have these major moments. It's seven women that I just live for. So they're they're not not really surprises, but just I just love watching them and um, watching them live and discover each night through the poems. Anybody else can jump in with their answer. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll say that I have found um they're really interesting and i'll try to carefully not say too much for those who haven't seen the play yet um there are really interesting parallels um between characters the several characters kind of have mirror other characters throughout the play and i say that because um it's interesting to watch who the audience empathizes with or finds to be um you know uh or derides sometimes there are there are slurs, there are epithets that are funny, but the same word is said differently later, and it's it's horrendous. It, you know, there's there's moans, there's groans, it's painful. It's a, a really interesting kind of play with the power of language, and you know how we how we rank nomenclature. Like what 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 is it? What is offensive? It's almost a tier system of um, we all have our own tier system of what is way too old, way too over the line, or what's kind of a comic foible. Um, and it's really interesting day in and day out to watch audiences kind of play ping pong with that. And this half of the room, this person up front, somebody's absolutely um, disgusted by something that is hilarious to somebody uh, 10 rows back. And nobody's right or wrong. I'm not judging it. It's just really sincerely interesting to watch that we are all different and we all come with a different um, you know, set of ingredients when we receive um, these experiences. And, and we have characters that say essentially the same thing about their philosophy or their perspective on life at different stages in the experience and we receive it totally differently for whatever reason so it is a really interesting kind of thread through the human experience and and um uh, our ability who we relate to and why uh with no with no right answer yeah and i kind of piggybacking that um there's a moment in our in my show where the audience is invited to clap along to a song. And every night, ever since we've ever done it, I'm always so excited to see who starts clapping right away, who doesn't clap at all, who who starts clapping right away and then stops in the middle of it, who keeps going the whole time through, who's turning to their neighbor to have a judgment about what their neighbor's doing, 
who doesn't mm. and like and just watching because that um for me causes another sort of loop within the story of a strange loop that feeds the the whole moment itself and only further tells Usher's story, Usher the protagonist. And I always am so excited by by all the many reactions that are happening because sort of thematically that is sort of exactly where Usher is trying to put everybody in that Mm. moment of like having to make a choice and having to decide for themselves how they feel about something that they're seeing in front of them, which is for him exactly what his whole life is like that. It's like, how do I feel about what am I seeing around me and what's being said to me and often, you know, at my own expense and sometimes even from myself. And so I just, I like, sort of doing that switcheroo for the audience and 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 seeing what they do. Do you hold your breath to see if they clap on one on three or two and four? <laughs> no. Because, well, I always know that they're going to clap in the right spot because that we bleed it in a real way. And it always stay. It's we're Listen, I'm no fool. <laughs> I know how to make, I know how to make, you know, people clap on the, on the, on the two and the three. So. Create rhythm. Yes. It's the, Harry, it's, it's the Harry Connick Jr. in me. <laughs> uh, there's a moment in the minutes, there's a moment late in the show where there's a shift, where the play moves from a uh, a lighter comedy to something uh, more sinister and more uh, indicting, really, of the audience. And I, I, I guess I'm surprised for just... Uh, how much the audience is willing to go along with that and engage in that discussion and how much they're, they're, they really want to be involved in that discussion about, and it's an indictment of everybody in the theater, really, uh, myself included. It doesn't really let anybody off the hook. And I'm always curious to see, to, to hear them go along with it. And then of course, I'm also always curious to witness those few people who won't go along with it and who are, in fact, enraged by it. Uh, we've gotten mm. some very angry uh, responses, very angry. Uh, people who don't want to uh, examine their history or don't want to, uh, they just don't, they won't go along with it. Also, what we hear a lot is, I didn't get it. And uh, then you ask a couple of questions. You say, well, did you see this happen? Yeah. Did you see this happen? Yeah. Well, then you got it. You, maybe you didn't like it. I mean. Oh, all right. <laughs> but I think you got it. <laughs> yeah, that happens that happens with us as well sometimes and I'm it's like it's you're right. Yeah, you just didn't like it. <laughs> yeah. So, that, and that's okay. <laughs> you're allowed to. Yeah, right. <laughs> Sutton, something in Music Man? I think um I think the thing that has surprised me the most and, you know, I, I recognize that we are uh, a big musical, uh, big musical reviver with a, an amazing, you know, with Hugh Jackman as our star. And I, I've never quite been in a show like that. Um, and so I am, I, I wasn't anticipating the audience being so excited from the get go. Like that, I've never had that experience where before we even did anything. Before we even so then it's about 
we have to make sure we like own up to like this like expectation, but they're, the audiences are going crazy before we, as soon as the overture starts. And so there is like, okay, all right, we have to like deliver, you know, deliver, mm-hmm. deliver something. But that I just, I just never, I, every night I'm sort of blown away by that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, on sort of the flip side of this coin, I mean, you, no one can control how an audience will respond to your work. Um, and that creates some really interesting things. I mean, Sutton people have, of course, had lots of opinions about the My White Knight keychain. Uh, Camille, you guys are closing earlier than you anticipated. Tracy, as you said, you wrote this play in one political climate and now are premiering on Broadway in another. Uh, Jesse, just this week, an audience member violated the social contract of your show and posted uh, legal images that they took during a performance. And Michael, there's been this really weird feedback of like, well, it's not for me, but I like it where I'm like, why isn't it for you? Um, but in all of those cases, like, how do you roll with those punches or or the weird things that come up out of the audience and the world's reaction to the work that are maybe things you could never have predicted or anticipated? I can just speak for me. It's like, I, I have to feel... I want to feel good about my work, good about what I'm doing, feel true about my choices. I knew I was taking a huge risk. I knew there might be people, but as long as I felt true, the minute I started trying to please other people or try to do what I thought people wanted, I was going to, it was going to be a disaster. So um, for me, it was about finding my own voice. And honestly, like those people's opinions about it are kind of none of my business. It doesn't help me. Go ahead, Michael. Can I cuss? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, I just kind of feel like, motherfucker, like, fuck everybody. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? Because, like, and I don't say that from, like, an arrogant place. I just mean doing, trying to do anything together is hard. And so people are going to have their opinions about, this or that or this or that. And so I have to like be in a centered place in order to try to do what I'm trying to do. And so I, I can't like, it's funny cause I actually, I'm a, have some sort of like masochistic tendencies where I read all the comments. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and listen, 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 listen. It's because I'm obsessed with understanding how people think about things. I don't care like what they think, but like how, but I, the thing that I learned, like the longer I like spent on like all that chat, that like, it was just sucking. (laughs) It was like, I know I'm like a bottom feeder for like the worst kind of commentary. And so like, I was like, but the longer I spent on there with people like talking shit about me, like the longer I was like, it, it wasn't even the how of what their thoughts were wasn't, like intellectually interesting to me. And so I had to like decide to like, just like you said, Sutton, it's none of my business. Like every, I mean, and I've also been that shitty person for many years. Oh God. I was like, I was like, I could out shit talk a Broadway world person under the table like 10 (laughs) years ago. And I've had to learn. I had that was me. It was me. I was like, I was, I was theater lover two seven five nine. You know, um, and I and I and I actually regret, and I regret that. And, and but I also had learned that like 
you you can do that or you can sit together with people and try to do something hard. It's mm. not hard mm. to comment online about stuff right. or to or to or to violate somebody's space or to do any of the things that you just referenced. What's hard is to do something together, collaborating with a group of people to to make a work of a piece of work of art. Um, yeah. And so I just have to stay focused on that. Like no matter what slings and arrows come back, and 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 also like none of these people will say this shit to your face. And no. if they do, mm-hmm. and and here's the thing, and if they do, they're really not going to want that smoke from me because that's where <laughs> I shine. <laughs> say, some shit, say some shit to my face, and I will fuck you all the way up. Oh my god, <laughs> I love it. But uh, I've had twenty years. Word. I've had twenty years to to grow into that. So right. I'll, I'll tell you a story. Amy Morton, when she was doing August Osage County, she she told me the story that invariably she would go out and do a show and do a Wednesday mat and the uh, audience would be very quiet and she would get angry. She would feel real contempt for the audience because she wasn't getting back feedback she was used to. And she would come off stage and she would say, fuck these people. These, I, 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 I've had it with this. What a terrible audience. And she said, invariably. Every time she felt that way, she would walk out the stage door and there would be a couple of teenage kids with programs, you know, crying. You've changed my life. It's just a reminder that, yes, there's shit talkers. Yes, there's dipshits. There's dipshits everywhere you look. But what we do touches people every show. Every performance touches somebody out there. And so you just have to try to focus on the work that you're doing with your your fellow artists and reach the people that you can reach and if they're not up for the conversation good luck to you amen 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 that's great yeah that that that's right i mean that reminds me of a a few things a i mean i've had some experience with you know this internet age you know the social media stuff now we're the we're the guinea pig generation of this um, a, a feedback loop that is, you know, objects in the mirror are appear much larger than they are, right? They, these, there's, it always seems louder and bigger, and like it's oh, this overrepresented population, and it's just a few people, and it doesn't matter. Right. None of it matters. The work matters. It's, yeah. you know, and, and as as Tracy was just talking, it reminds me of something I used to say to my students when I used to teach high school, and I remember myself how stressful high school can be, and we all we all do. Um, and you think that what people think about you and who's cool and what the gossip is, it's destroy your life, right? It, it really does destroy people's lives. And I, I remember saying to my, my students, you know, like, who was the coolest? Who was the coolest in fifth grade? Who was the one that got shit talked in the cafeteria in eighth grade? Who was running the show in ninth grade? You never remember. You don't remember. It doesn't matter. And even if you do remember, it doesn't matter. Where are you now? What did you make that lasts through four seasons that last through weather and storms and over the, or over, you know, epochs, what, what's real. Um, all the rest is just dust blowing around it, it, it. You just can't. Yeah. You take a peek and I've, I've, I've taken a peek before Michael and, and, and I, I can feel myself being, I can feel pollutant. I can feel <laughs> myself being poisoned, right? Like it changes my, I can feel the energy happening and all right, I got a sense. All right. Okay. I'm gl- I'm glad I took a look, but I'm not going to live. I'm not, I can't breathe in this garage for this for this long. I got to open some windows. I got to move on. Um, uh, but I ha- I have had to. You know, you just got to kind of keep your legs moving and realize like 
that's always going to be there. You can't fight with the internet. It's not, it's amorphous. It's a blob, right? It has no, it has not tactile. You can't touch it or feel it. It's not real. Um, and uh, they're not going to do it to your face. They will get, you know, they will get, uh, um, they, they can't, up. they're not equipped. They're not equipped for that. They don't they have get, the intellect or ability <laughs> because it's not real, you know, in the, in the, in the words of, uh, of Jeff Daniels and a squid and the whale, like they're not a serious people. You know, you're, you're not a serious, you're not worth, you're not worth sparring with, you know, and, and, you know, um, and, uh, um, so, so, so yeah, I, um, we're in it, we're in it, we're in an interesting age of a collision of cultures, right? The sacred space of the theater that's from, that's existed since time immemorial, and social media, camera, phone, gossip, chat, get your 15 seconds, get somebody clickbait, clickbait stuff. These two worlds are colliding and, you know, theater has got to hold its ground. We got to demand to continue to be a sacred space. And we're not playing that shit here in terms of the kind of invasion stuff, right? We have to hold our ground or else this stuff is a virus that takes over um, a lot of other aspects of our culture. And that, um, and all of it is culture, you know, and that speaks to an, er an earlier question, you know, about audiences and diversity. And, you know, all, all it's not just black or gay or queer or any, that's not the only culture. Whiteness is culture. Whiteness is culturally specific. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, like some people, we don't understand what is, uh, it is, it is culturally specific. It's not just a, a blank canvas for, uh, and all of us are kind of icing on the cake. So uh, different topics there, but they are, are all kind of somewhat related um, to me because we're all bringing different baggage to the, to the store. Um, hmm. But yeah, it's certainly an interesting, it's certainly an interesting carousel we're on. Camille, did you um, want to weigh in? Yeah, yeah I mean, I think everyone said it just to echo what everyone said, focus on your work, focus on your truth. You know, if it's something that you believe in, the creative team believes in, the cast believes in, then you move forward with that. Um, so I'll just say that. Yeah. Well, we're just about out of time, but I'll end things with a, a sort of fun question, which is, would all of you want to try on each other's hats? So Sutton and Jesse, would you like to write or direct Tracy would you ever do a musical Camille and Michael um do you would you want to go back into performing and acting um yeah just curious mm. Mm. well I still perform so I just haven't I've, I've just never done it in the theater world there's like concert dance and theater so I've just I've I've, I've really had a performing career in concert dance um, I would love to be on stage in theater. I don't know if people would want to see me do that on stage, but you know. Um, so yeah. Um, I don't. I never want to be in charge of anything. So no to, to like directing, but I do enjoy performing, and I would like. I would like to do that. I mean, I'm, I'm not. No one. No one. Please don't cast me in anything. But like, I like. <laughs> but I like performing. Like, I would do that. I'd pay to see it. <laughs> I'm a pretty good actress. <laughs> directing certainly for me. Uh, I mean, I've I've done some directing in, in TV and film, and I, it's probably the place I feel the most like myself, um, and not I feel the least imposter syndrome uh, in that space. Um, so, so that will continue to be part of my future, and I, I would think, I hope. Well, thank you all so much for all of your time and congratulations on your nominations and wishing you all the best of luck. And for those of you who have open-ended shows, very long runs. <laughs> thank you so much. Real pleasure. Congrats, everybody. 
Okay, well, first of all, Maureen, that was a really fantastic conversation and wonderful work getting all of those uh, great people together. That was fascinating hearing what they had to say about essentially internet trolls, reviews, what they do care about, what they don't care about. It kind of reminds me um, in this in this season of Hacks where Gene Smart's character Deborah Vance is like, no, I do read reviews because I do care. Um, so it's that fine line of like, how much do you want to open yourself up to criticism? Because of course, you know, a lot of people think you need criticism to be able to learn and grow. But by the same token, some people just blab stuff that they, it's like, what kind of credibility do you have to be talking about any of this? Well, yeah. And I just think we still have so many gaps in criticism in terms of whose voice is a critic. um, And it's still mostly white men. And and then you think about something like A Strange Loop, where there have been these really odd reviews that have been rapturous and praised it, but then had to mention that, well, but it's not for me. And that's like, what? Right. What? Uh, what does yeah. that mean? <laughs> um, it's so odd. Artists for everyone. Right, right. And it, it's, you know, often we will all talk about stuff and be like, you know, look, I like this kind of genre isn't my cup of tea. Sure. But, um, and so I get like prefacing something like that. But I know what you mean. People are like going into these, you know, their their reviews of some of these shows, especially A Strange Loop, um, some that I read that it really felt like they were like, an authoritative voice on this material in this show, but then kind of flipped it and said that. And I was like, "Mm, I'm not sure you should have been the one writing this review. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it was very interesting for us. I actually had Dave Quinn from People reviewing for us. Yeah. And when I reached out to Dave to to ask him to review it for us, he was like, "Uh, do we have a Black queer critic that could review this? Like, I would be much more comfortable with that. And I was like, sadly, we do not have that person on staff because I agree with you. I would much rather that person be the one reviewing this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It does become certainly a really interesting study into uh, criticism, as you mentioned, and, um, you know, what kind of voices we should be trusting and listening to um, when it comes to critiques and analyses of of various projects. So I'm glad to hear all of their thoughts on all of that, because I think um, a lot of us in journalism, believe it or not, we certainly do feel the same way. So I'm glad that got brought up. And Maureen, thank you again for that and for joining me today. Oh, my pleasure. And I do want to give a little shout out to our former theater editor and wonderful colleague, Jessica Dershowitz, because she has been talking about doing an awardist Tony's Roundtable for probably the entire five years I've been at AW. And (laughs) we finally made it happen, even though she's not here anymore. So shout out to her because this never would have happened without her talking about it for the last five years. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this one is dedicated to her. Happy to uh, finally be getting this on here. With that, everyone, that is it for this week's episode of The Awardist. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate the podcast, and leave all of us an award-winning review on Apple Podcasts. And to keep the conversation with us going, follow Entertainment Weekly on all socials at EW on Twitter and at Entertainment Weekly everywhere else. You can also tag me at Jared Hall. We will see you right back here next week. Bye. This episode of the Awardist podcast is hosted by Jared Hall, produced by Chanel Johnson and Sammy Junio, edited by Sammy Junio. Full episode transcripts are available at EW.com. Thanks for listening. Listener.